0: Welcome to the podcast Bipolar Boss. This podcast is all about serving up bipolar realness, real stories, real struggles, and real happiness. I am on a mission to change the conversation about mental illness, and that starts here with me, and you. I want to hashtag end the stigma around mental health so that it is treated just like any other illness. So many of us don't have a voice or are not ready to use their voice. It can be exhausting, draining, and requires a lot of courage and bravery. So I want to be that voice for people. I want to create awareness and educate others so that people understand what it's like and what we go through on a daily basis. Today, I'm going to talk about psychology and bipolar disorder with my guest Dr. Julie Zelig. Dr. Julie Zelig is from Florida. She's a therapist, um, psychologist that I connected through on with on Instagram. I reached out to her initially about a course that I'm creating that some of you know about um to help people with mental health disorders like myself. I was seeing if maybe she wanted to, you know, consult with me on that and We've kind of made a connection since then, and I asked her if she wanted to be a guest on my podcast since, you know, she's a psychologist, and I really, really um, would love, you know, to for everyone to hear the perspective of a psychologist and to give us all some advice. Um, so today I'm going to have her on here. We're going to talk about different things in terms of bipolar disorder, so managing and coping with your stress in your sleep, um, also some warning signs, and then we're going to also talk about the difference between uh borderline personality and bipolar disorder, because I got asked that question a lot. We'll talk a little bit more about medication, so stay tuned. I'm really excited for all of you to uh, meet Dr. Julie and for you guys to have a great time with us. Please note that this is strictly advice and opinions and is not meant to replace any form of treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to build awareness and create more conversation around mental health. If you need immediate attention and are struggling, please see your doctor or call 911. Hi everyone. How's it going? Thank you so much for tuning in today. So, I know it's been a hard week for everyone with um the passing of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. I know it was uh, especially hard for me. I did not have a good week. Week last week, I was definitely in a depressive state. Um I had uh been affected by their deaths because on Sunday um of last week, I had a very bad day. I just was feeling very suicidal the most suicidal I'd felt in a really long time and so when I heard about Kate Kate Spade's death I um, you know it it did affect me and I didn't realize it until a couple days later I was sitting in a diner with my girlfriend and um, I had made a post on Instagram about my um, open letter to everyone who's dealing with suicide or who has bipolar disorder and my mom had commented on it saying you know this is sad but true and it just made me cry because I was like you know, I, one, I felt bad for my mom that she has to have a daughter that wants to commit suicide and, and has bipolar disorder. I mean, that must be so tough on, on her end, but also because of the way I was feeling and the fact that, you know, it's just scary. It's so real and it could happen to any one of us. And it's, it is very scary that we can do that to ourselves. Um, I don't normally get affected by celebrities' deaths usually. Um, just because I don't know the person I mean it's sad of course but it doesn't affect me like that and when it's because it's suicide I think it really affected me more I mean I've never even heard of Kate Spade um from what I see now, she's awesome and was so successful. And so, in Anthony Bourdain, same thing. He's so successful and a great person, and everyone speaks so highly of him. So, it really doesn't have anything to do with your personality and who you are and what you've got in life. Um, it really just comes down to your illness and the fact that suicide is a product of our illness. And it can happen to all of us, and we do need to speak up and and reach out. But people also need to reach out to us, too, right? If you have someone who's struggling in your life, reach out to them. If there's something you feel like you need to say, don't Hold it in. Um, you don't don't hold in. I love you. Don't hold in. You're a great person. You know. Just even the other day, a friend of mine, um, we were just talking about our mental health in general, and I was telling him how I was feeling suicidal, and he just, you know, he came out and said, "You're such an amazing, talented person. I am so glad to have you as a friend." And honestly, it me, it's making me tear up now. It made me tear up then because just to hear something like that, it it really makes you feel worthy, and even though you can tell yourself to feel worthy it it's really nice to hear it from other people so it it can be as simple as that so somebody who you know is struggling tell them how much you appreciate them in your life and how great they are because when you get down into those dark spots you forget and you forget how to tell yourself that and nothing else matters the only thing that matters is the way you're thinking in that moment and it's really hard to pull yourself out of those dark spots so sorry to get all emotional on you guys. I wasn't planning on this, but um, it, you know it's very sad and I want everybody to feel comfortable with themselves and with your illness because it's scary to be scared of yourself. And that's really what bipolar feels like sometimes. And you know, before I got diagnosed and when I was really bad, I was so scared of myself that I couldn't be alone. And I still use that principle and that rule. And when I am alone, I um, always reach out. Um, and and trying, no, I try not to be alone when I'm feeling like that. I do anything. I'll I'll you know drive to somebody's house or get my mom to come out of work and sit in the car with me or you know just anything. It doesn't matter. <sighs> okay, so. That's the end of that. Let's move on to some great stuff. Today, I have um, Dr. Julie Zelig on my podcast. Uh, She's a psychologist from Florida. It's going to be so great to have a psychologist on here and to, you know, really get her perspective on everything. Um, So Dr. Julie Zelig is a licensed clinical psychologist in Florida, specialized in working with teens and adults Um, with compassion and focus. Julie is committed to helping you heal from the past and to guide you towards rediscovering your inner strength. She specializes in treating anxiety, depression, social anxiety, body image concerns, coping with transitions and relationship issues, and she offers in-person and virtual sessions to across the globe and leads women's support groups focused on building self-esteem. So Julie is super busy and I'm really glad she can spend that time with us today, so stay tuned. I'm going to talk Ask her lots of questions about my diagnosis, why it took so long, um, some barriers to getting diagnosed and and resources, and the difference between uh, borderline personality and bipolar disorder, since I get asked that question a lot, and many more great topics, so stay tuned. Hello? Hi. Hi. Hi, Julie. How's it going? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here with you today. Thanks. yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. It's gonna to be awesome to to get your perspective as a site. Um, and uh, yeah, so how's it going? You're in Florida, right?
1: Yes, I'm in Florida and i've I've been here for about a year from New York City. Nice. Um, that's quite the change. Yes, it is a change of pace, and it's been um, a nice,
0: slower change of pace down here. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been to New York. Um, actually, I grew up in Ontario, so it's not a very far drive from where I grew up, and um, I love it. But it is very busy, and it can be a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yes, definitely, it it is a bit of a hustle there. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, um, so yeah, today with Julie, I'm just going to go through some questions that um, I kind of think about a lot, but I can only answer so much not being a doctor. So I really um, look forward to your perspective on these. And I just want to say to everybody that today, all of these um, comments and questions are strictly advice and our opinions that are not meant to replace any um, form of treatment, and the purpose of this podcast is to build awareness. Um, pardon?
1: Great. Yes. Exactly. It's, it's, so it's not even exactly advice, but it's it's suggestions and um, it's psychoeducational to to spread awareness
0: about bipolar disorder and mental health. Exactly, and that's the whole point of this podcast. Um, it's really just to get the word out there because. There's too many of us that um, silently struggle, as I did for years. Um, you know, if I had a podcast like this when I was struggling, I think it definitely would have helped me make more sense of what I was going through. So I really appreciate you um, um, honing in on that and giving us all of your opinions. Um, so let's just start out. I just want to ask you some questions, kind of about being a psychologist and and what that what that is like. So how long have you been a psychologist? i have been licensed as a psychologist in new york um, for about
1: five years and newly licensed in florida for about a year now and um, for a little under a year but i've been practicing for about nine years because my graduate training really just kind of from the first year of my graduate training in san francisco was providing therapy to people in community mental health clinics. And and that was part of your coursework, was really just providing therapy from the very beginning. So,
0: so it's been yes. about nine years. That's awesome. Um, and so when you change uh, states, you have to get a different – like you have to apply for a different license, or how does that work?
1: Yes, it actually was much more complicated than I – imagined moving from New York, even though my New York state license is still active. I had to take a new exam and Florida is actually pretty strict with, you need to learn all new laws for this state. So yeah, it was definitely not the easiest transition to start practicing here. But once I got started, it's just kind of, you know, a bump in the road and, and you kind of forget how difficult that process was once you're out of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's almost like when you have to go, uh, you know, if you had to go take your driver's license after like 10 years, they were like, oh, you moved to a new province. Now you have to get, you know, go through that whole process. Uh- yes, exactly. <laughs> and, it, and it
1: is, it's, it's starting to study again and, and relearn things, you know, in some ways it helped because it really refreshed my memory of things that, that I needed to, um, to be familiar with. But it was also just a lot of learning new things
0: okay yes cool so did they have a different way that they um teach psychology then like there was complete different um kind of some theories that you were learning or is it pretty similar I think it's
1: similar it's
0: just mainly the laws
1: like certain laws are different here yeah so it's not even things I learned in graduate school it's just kind of things specific to Florida um yeah so it took a bit but um I'm glad to have that behind me now
0: hmm. Yeah, that must feel really good. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so what do you think the most challenging part of being a psychologist is? And what is the most rewarding part?
1: So I, I really like that question. I haven't been asked that before. Oh. But um, the challenging part for me, I think is let's say having someone come in to see me for something they want to change in their life. And um, you know, really noticing things that, that could help that, you know, if only they were to stop doing this, or if they were to, um, you know, change some kind of behavior or pattern that could really help. And, and maybe it's something that's getting in their way of making the progress that they want to make. You know, therapy is a, is a real collaborative process, meaning that it takes two people to really, it takes me as the therapist and it takes my client's active effort to try to change certain things in their life. So let's say someone, they may think they want to change, but really they may not be ready to do what they need to do to to make the change. I think that can be frustrating um, and kind of maybe sometimes like I'm working harder than Than the client to get them back on track. So, and I would say that doesn't happen so often, but but it is hard to see if only someone could could do this, or you know, then their life would could turn around. And so, you kind of have to take a step back and and remember that this is the client's journey, and that you know, at the end of the day, it's up to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is hard. Um, like even from my perspective being the client side, like there, I know that I went to and saw some psychologist or therapist and I wasn't really ready to do the change. Um, so it would be if, if both sides have to be committed, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah,
1: exactly. And I would say that the most rewarding, I mean, there's a lot of rewarding parts of this work and, and I truly believe I was kind of born to be a psychologist. And I know that sounds kind of funny <laughs> because many people decide later in life what they want to do. And, but, um, but I, I love hearing um, an uncensored story, you know, someone's like really painful moments, someone's you know um things that have that have brought them to where they are and sometimes and not that i love hearing the painful moments but it's just really Mm -hmm. real and it's the human experience has such a variety of of colors and experiences and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we um don't share that very openly and I'm honored that with my clients they that I'm able to kind of be beside them and during their journey of exploring different parts of themselves and and feeling like they really do trust me with this information that maybe they haven't told anybody before and just kind of being in that position of letting kind of um helping someone discover parts of themselves or, or helping someone to feel more safe and accepted and, and normal, you know, they come in feeling Mm -hmm. like this isn't normal. And this is, you know, and really what is normal? I mean, many people experience things that many, a lot of times people don't talk about. So um, I think just hearing, hearing them, say it out loud and realize, wow, that wasn't such a big deal or just kind of laughing at some things that they think is like so scary to talk about sometimes.
0: Um, I love that I'm able to, to be there for someone. Wow. That's awesome. Where were you 10 years ago when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, yeah. That's absolutely amazing to, to hear that because um, it sounds like you really connect with your clients and I've just never heard it be put in that way. And um, for me, I love that because I love telling my real story. Um, And I think that that's the truth to to changing really is, is to coming um, into your own truth. And um, I just think that's awesome.
1: Oh, thank (laughs) you. And I think that but I think I'm happy to have the chance to describe it that way, because there are so many reasons people don't come in to seek help. And Mm -hmm. there is, you know, to be real, there is stigma out there that prevents people from getting the help they need and i think half the time the battle is just getting in the door and it yeah. is all about finding the right fit of the person that you're you're talking to it you know it's just like anything else there are so many kinds of personalities out there so you you need to find the the person that that you can feel the most comfortable with to really be yourself and share those things that are hard to talk about
0: exactly it's true and it's hard to trust the person. I know that I found that hard um just going into a new office with a new doctor. Um and have like I didn't really have the the greatest luck with um psychologists unfortunately and psychiatrist. Um and so it's hard to trust that person, but I feel like you would make it easy. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it. that's, you know, half the battle really. Um and one other thing I wanted to to mention that you said was you, you brought up the word normal. And honestly, I I know because people are always like, what is normal, right? And a lot of people kind of don't like using that word. Um, I just thought it was funny because I use that word all the time. <laughs> like for me, I, I like calling myself normal. Like when I feel normal, that means I'm feeling healthy. Um, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with that saying that word necessarily. Because um, I think Yes, we don't know really what normal is. We don't know how to define it. But there is some kind of almost a sense of ease or um, relief, I find, when I use that word. Um, So I don't know how you feel about that word, but I feel that you mentioned it.
1: Well, I also like saying, you know, what your usual self would be like so like mm-hmm. your normal is different than someone else's normal and so it's very it exactly. depends and so um looking at yourself and saying what would my usual self be like in when I'm feeling my best or when I'm feeling my normal self um mm-hmm. so I think it's hard to say how could there be one normal for everyone there's
0: everyone starting from a different point yeah definitely no I think that's great um it's that's a very good point Okay so um I and I've kind of already talked about this with you but my listeners and and a lot of people already know this about me they know that it took me a really long time to get the proper diagnosis and it was um really hard cuz I got misdiagnosed three or four times that, even more than that really like there's a bunch of different diagnoses on my file from the beginning of me starting seeing these psychiatrists and psychologists um so why do you think this is and what can psychologists do to try and stop this from happening?
1: So this is a really good question. And I think, you know, it, it, it can seem like it's psychologists or psychiatrists who are having, um, difficulty diagnosing. And I think that is a big part of it, but it's also just the nature of bipolar disorder. When you understand, um, just how it presents, it can be confusing. It can be hard for the person who's experiencing these symptoms to know that it's a problem. So, not, mm-hmm. and again, not all the time. So, uh, bipolar disorder, the symptoms look different in each person, depending on the severity and depending on the type of bipolar disorder you have. So, um, you know, some of the behaviors might even be overlooked, like, you know, explained as um, let's say one of the symptoms of hypomania and mania is um, impulsivity and you know um, some risk-taking behaviors. And so, for a person who is let's say um, you know drinking a lot or or um, doing things that you know, let's say they're in college, they're drinking a lot, they're staying out late, they're partying hard. They're spending a lot of money. You know, these behaviors might be kind of explained away as um, just things people do when they're in college or when they're out of out of the house. And, and so someone who comes in to see a doctor and, and the um, psychologist or the psychiatrist is asking questions to kind of understand what the root of the problem is. Someone who is experiencing those symptoms number one, may not think that's a big problem. They might not really know to to talk about those changes in their behavior. You know, like some of the main symptoms with bipolar disorder is decreased need for sleep or the, or the flip side is really sleeping too much. So the sleep being really out of balance and that might be just kind of, um, pretty common when you're in college. And, and that's when some of the symptoms really, um, start is in college. And, and those, um, during those times it can be hard for the person in an episode to remember that that happened. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the symptoms is having difficulties with memory and, and judgment. And, and um, so that can be hard for someone who has to give a history to the doctor. It's hard to give all those specific details that you need when you are diagnosing to know really what was, what's the pattern of behavior that's happening. Mm -hmm. So, so one thing that can be really helpful is if a family member or like a partner of that person can come into the session and really provide the information as an observer to say, you know, actually this, um, you know, my girlfriend or boyfriend isn't sleeping. They're not, you know, they're talking differently. They're dressing differently. They're, um, you know, certain times they're doing things that is not like them and it kind of comes and goes. And I think that can be really hard because someone with bipolar disorder can present as just kind of depressed or really anxious sometimes. And someone might mistake that as a a unipolar depression or an anxiety disorder or a personality Mm -hmm. disorder, rather than really what's going on because the, the mania or the hypomania comes and goes and so it, it can be kind of short, those episodes. And so unless you really give the information,
0: it, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint what's really going on. Yeah. Um you're totally right. And I think it is a a mixture of things. I think for me what was happening was um and and to, it was mostly psychiatrists, to be honest, that it was happening with because a lot of psychologists um that I've seen in, in Canada, they don't diagnose. Um, they just do uh, their different types of therapy. So I was having to go to psychiatrists in order to get this diagnosis because a lot of GPs won't do it either hmm. um, because they, you know, they're GPs, general, general practitioners. They don't necessarily know specifics of these disorders. And so what was happening was, um, you know, even though at the time I had no idea that I had bipolar disorder, I really didn't. Um, but they were just quickly diagnosing me with anxiety disorders like within 10 minutes. And so at first I was like, okay, I have an anxiety disorder because I was really young and I did have lots of anxiety. So I just took that and, and went with that, but I never got better. And then I saw people later on. And again, it was anxiety disorder and then also an adjustment disorder, which is a new disorder, I think in the DSM. Um, and I knew it wasn't that. And at this point I had already some other psychologists had already mentioned to me that I was most likely bipolar, but couldn't diagnose because he was a psychoeducational psychologist. And so again, with the anxiety and adjustment disorder, I was like, no, this is not it because you know, this is, this is 12 years of me. There's something else going on. And even um, because when I'm in mania, I have a lot of OCD uh, tendencies. So I guess I've, you know, mild OCD, and um, the one. So it was a psychiatrist and his. Um, like I don't not an apprentice, but what do you call it when you're, learning from? Like I guess after you graduate. So like a
1: super someone who is being supervised, some kind
0: of intern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so it was one of those so he asked can can my intern um interview you and I said sure and I said to her because OCD was really presenting itself a lot that's what was very that's what I thought was wrong with me and all she said was do you wash your hands a lot and I said I do but that's not really one of my obsessions or compulsions and she said okay then you don't have OCD
1: wow uh yeah
0: and to me, that was really limiting. And, and I even know that there's more going on with OCD than just washing your hands. Washing your hands is what we see on movies and TV shows and what people talk about. But that doesn't have to be OCD, right?
1: Right. So, I mean, there's many other ways it presents.
0: Yeah. So to me, I was just like, I didn't know, couldn't understand what was going on. Why aren't these people, you know, and even my doctor growing up, even though I was they're just she's just a GP, but I was I cried and I was every time I went to the doctor I was super stressed all the time. She never dug deeper. I never really said anything. I just said, you know, that I don't feel right, but it she never dug deeper. So I just I feel like kind of that I guess I had bad luck. I don't know. But it yeah. just yeah, I felt like, why why isn't there more happening? And then even when I had the bipolar diagnosis there in front of my face, they still ignored it. Um, you know, the psychiatrist said, well, you're not violent and you're, you've never been arrested in public. Or sorry, you haven't been violent in public and arrested in public, so you can't be bipolar. You're too pretty to have bipolar disorder. These are all the things that she said to me. And I'm sitting here, like, so confused because the other psychologist told me that I really seem like I have bipolar disorder so from you know from my perspective you can see how confusing this is I'm like I don't right well let me just
1: yeah let me just um debunk any myth that you can't your appearance has nothing to do with your mental health or your if you have a mental illness or if you have bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. your appearance has nothing to do with it and it sounds like you know Um, And I've listened to your other episodes where you are higher, high functioning, and and there are different degrees and different severities of the disorder. So, you know, it doesn't look the same in everyone, it actually looks really different. And it can, Mm -hmm. it can present in all kinds of ways. So um, I think that I think, unfortunately, you did have bad luck with who you went to. And and I really hope anyone who's listening can be open minded that it is about finding the right person for you and yeah. the right doctor, the right person who can ask the right questions. And also, there's a part of you that really needs to be really honest about everything that you're able to share about your, you know, it might be embarrassing to open up about some of the things you're, some of the behaviors or some of the patterns you're, you're, um, you're getting caught up in, but unless the doctor has that information, I mean, it's, it is kind of a two-way process. Like I talked about in the beginning where the, the client needs to share all those details. And then also the, the doctor needs to be able to ask you all these important questions.
0: So it's really both people need to be, Involved, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's just so hard when you're in that vulnerable position. Like I was. So this was the worst manic episode I had ever had, and I didn't have any doctor to turn to. I finally did find find a really great psychologist. Thank God. But it, you know, that's what really pushed me to start all of this because for me, I'm a really strong person. I just took that as you know, kind of like, okay, goodbye, this is not the right person, and you're not giving me the right advice. Um, So but even like my partner at the time had even come into the office, like what you were talking about, how they could come in and explain the behavior. And she did, she came in with me and explained kind of what she had been witnessing. And, um, and the, the doctor would talk about me in front of both of us, like I wasn't there. She was mm-hmm. like, she did this and this and this. And so even that didn't help. So I guess, yeah, and I know that was just a really bad, bad situation, but um, it's just interesting how somebody that, you know, has had the training and is in this position with these vulnerable people and that it's happening. Yeah.
1: And I think, you know, unfortunately it really is just like anything when you're interviewing for a job or you're dating someone and you're going through you know meeting different types of people you really do need to just see who's the best fit for you and unfortunately there are people out there who don't have you know great training and there are also many people and I can attest to my colleagues I've worked with who I would highly recommend to anyone um to a family member if I had someone I wanted to give to someone who would get good care so I think um And I think it's so important you're sharing your experience and also to say that there are other people out there who really have had the training and can help. And I think that the really important point, though, is that when you're in a manic episode, you're not able to really be providing some of the information that's really needed because mm-hmm. the, your thought process is confused and you're not able to remember some of the things that are really important. So I, I do yeah. think it is very important for, for a family to be involved if they can or, a, or a partner. And, and it is a delicate issue how to involve them in that so that it is respectful of the client.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that's great to hear that there's lots of <laughs> psychologists and doctors out there that are doing the right thing. Um, I think and another issue here in Canada, I know because um, I live here and have been through it is is the fact that some of it is funded and some of it is not. Um, we do have free health care, but um, we don't have there aren't a lot of free resources in terms of in mental health. Um, we do have to pay for our treatment. Um, and I found when you did pay, you got a lot better um, service and care than, than the government-funded programs. So I think that has a little bit to do with it as well. Um, sure. Yeah. So I think that you're right. It is a mixture of everything. And there's a, it is very complicated when you're going through these um, episodes. And it is so hard to communicate what is happening to you because you don't even know. And, you know, I went through a period of psychosis as well. So it was like just... So the hardest time in, in my life. So I think that it's important that we're talking about it because, you know, we all need to know this and the, and doctors and, and clients and, and everybody in the family and that, um, you know, kind of all have to come together during these times and support each other to, to get the right help.
1: Yes. And I think the, the point you were highlighting before about how important it is to get diagnosed Even though it can take a while, unfortunately, I think 12 years sounds way too long that it took that long, but it can take people a long time because um, the symptoms can mimic other symptoms and it can be confusing to tease out what's really going on. But once you do have a diagnosis, there really is hope and there is a lot of progress you can make and you can lead a really fulfilling life if you're... You know, medication is highly recommended and in combination with therapy. And if there's any substance abuse going on, if there's some type of substance abuse treatment, that's really helpful also. But Mm. I think just keeping that in mind that once you get the diagnosis, I think from what you've said, too, it really changed your life and how you then
0: were able to really get the help you need. Oh, yeah, totally. It changed my life 100%. Like, as soon as I – because for me, like, I'm a super determined, ambitious, ambitious person. Like, I will do anything I have to do to, you know, be healthy and and live a good life. And so, as soon as I got that diagnosis, I was like, okay. I just revamped my entire life, and I just stuck with it, and I got better. So, I think that it that diagnosis, a lot of people – you know, I hear a lot of people saying it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is, just all, and, and it, it matters. I can tell you 100% that it matters. It's very important to know what is going on with you so that you can come up with a proper strategy in order to get better. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, we've kind of already talked about my next question, but let's just focus on it a little bit more before we um, go into our break. But So as we've said, it took me 12 years to get diagnosed. Um, And with your practice and everything that you know, do you think it is an unusual amount of time for someone with bipolar disorder to get um, diagnosed or does it depend? Or what do you think is a normal amount of time?
1: Yeah, well, I think, again, with normal, it depends because everyone's situation is different. So someone who comes into my office as depressed, you know, um, you – you can focus on the depression and, and not, not focus as much on some of those hypomanic or manic symptoms if you're not seeing it, or maybe that person hasn't experienced an episode like that yet. And Mm -hmm. that can happen sometimes even later in life. Someone's first um, manic episode can happen much later in life. So I think it can be the other flip side of it is when you do a history, someone might not remember that there was a short episode that happened and they might not, talk about it with you. So, um, you know, unfortunately, it can take a while to diagnose it properly. But I do think, unfortunately, 12 years does sound like that was, that was too long. And yeah, I think at the same time, you're in a place right now where you're really motivated, and you're um, actively trying to help other people, and you're sharing so much. And so I think, i I believe everyone's journey happens as it's supposed to when it's supposed to, even if it's it's super hard and it's you know you wish it was different in some way it happened at a time where now you're at this place where you're able to really share with people um and I don't think I don't think that's the norm um but I don't think there really is a norm with bipolar disorder on on everyone's situation looks a bit different, so mm-hmm. I think if you have all the information. Um, and someone's able to provide it to you, it, it could take a, just a few sessions to figure that out after you do a thorough history and you, you meet with someone. It sh- I don't think it should have to take that long, um, but it just depends on on getting that information that you need.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. Um, I think that it's, yeah, my situation, I don't think it's definitely the norm, but I think I went through it for a reason. Um, and that's, you know, that reason is to help others. So, um, I think that's great. And I think that, uh, you have a really great perspective on all of this and it sounds like you're doing really great work. So I just want to thank you for that.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I'm happy to be able to share this and I think your community, it sounds like could,
0: could benefit from more information. So I'm yeah. happy. Awesome. Okay, well, we're just going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back. Um, We've got some more questions for you, uh, some more questions about bipolar disorder, um, some mood regulation, managing stress, that kind of stuff. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be right back. Hey. Hey, we're back. <laughs> so, yeah, we're back everyone. We have Dr. Julie Zelig in the house from Florida. Um she's here today to give us her perspective as a psychologist. And um we've had some really great conversation already. And I'm excited to ask you some more questions. All, All right. right, so let- yeah, let's get started. Uh what do you find are the most presenting warning signs of someone who is bipolar or maybe bipolar?
1: Well, let's see. So there is um the the main presenting problem is this mood fluctuation that can be pretty severe. So there's a depressed side and then there's a more elevated side of mania or hypomania. So um, someone can present as, you know, in a depressive episode and then there's times when they're more energized and kind of, um, you know, that can look like feeling really optimistic and like goal oriented or that, or also very irritable. Um, It can look like feeling, um, you know, having lots, lots of ideas, lots of things you want to accomplish, which actually is, it can be really productive, but it can quickly spiral into something that is really not. Um, So when we look at a warning sign, some things that can trigger mania or a sign it can look like, um, it can look like mania is when there's a decreased need for sleep. So you might not be sleeping and you still feel energized and you can, you know, you cannot sleep for, for days. Um, It can, it can really range, but there's also an impairment in your judgment and, and being more impulsive. So doing things you wouldn't normally do. And if a friend were to kind of hear what you've been doing, it's just not like you, like maybe being more promiscuous or spending a lot of money or, you know, all of a sudden wanting to go take a trip by yourself somewhere for really no reason. And you don't know anyone there and you don't really know why you want to do that. Um, (laughs) You know, um, there's a, there, those are some signs, but warning signs is, is, you know, um, self-harming, risky behavior, things, putting yourself in situations that, you know, you're unsafe, you know, all of these are warning signs, but we really want to look out for, you know, isolating yourself or, or putting
0: yourself in these risky situations. Okay, good. Um, and in terms of mania, Um, I was talking about this in my last episode where I was debunking the myths. Um, a lot of people kind of think that mania is like happiness and feeling elated and on top of the world. And for me, I never, I've maybe felt that twice in my life. Um, it's more irritation and anger, um, like extreme, extreme irritation. And do you, do you find that more often than kind of the the happy side of it?
1: Well I think it it really depends on the person but I think it can it can be one or the other so it can it can be anger outbursts and irritability and and um being very distracted and unable to concentrate um and then the flip side of it is I mean I would someone can look like they're in a really good mood and then that can turn into irritability also and and mm-hmm. it can turn into if it's not addressed you know mania has different different ways of presenting.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess, yeah, it looks different for, for every person. Um, yes.
1: And, and then the other, another warning sign is, you know, thoughts of suicide that can happen in a depressive state or that can, you know, putting yourself in a situation where your safety is at risk. You really want to, um, if you see anyone who's in that position or or is talking, you know, not like themselves and is talking about death, that's something that's when someone really needs to seek help and if they're mm-hmm. not willing to seek help you can always call um 911 or or bring someone um you know trying to get that support to that person because sometimes um the person in that episode really doesn't doesn't see that it's a problem they don't really understand what's going on either
0: yeah yeah when you're in that state it's confusing and like, it's so hard to explain. It's like you don't even know what's real sometimes. And you just get so dark. And I just remember having so many times where I'm <clears throat> so suicidal. And thank God I had people in my life that were supportive. Um, but it's really hard to to make the right choices sometimes and to get help. There's been many times where I've wanted to go to the hospital and I probably should should have, but I didn't. Um, but I would definitely recommend if you have a loved one that's like that, get them to the hospital, call 911, go to your doctor. If you have one, go right away. I did start going because I found an amazing GP. When that stuff would happen to me, I would go to his office right away um, because he also has – he takes walk-ins. So – Whenever I felt like that, I just would go see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and my psychologist also let me have her number um, kind of in my, in my phone for those emergency situations. So that helped a lot um, when I was feeling really manic because I get more suicidal when I'm manic. Um, I was able to call her and she helped me quite a bit. So I think setting up that support system is really, really, really important.
1: Yes, completely.
0: Yes. Okay. So I know you don't prescribe medication as a psychologist, but in general, what is your take on medication and bipolar bipolar disorder? How do you work with your clients on this?
1: I think that medication is, is really the treatment of choice with bipolar disorder and, you know, when, as a psychologist because i'm I'm mainly talking to people about their emotions, their thoughts, their uh, behaviors, um, I think it works really well when someone is seeing a psychiatrist and they're having their medication managed and they're also in therapy. I think that combination is really great. Um, mm-hmm. It really is important to be consistent with your medication. A problem that is really common is someone might be taking their medication. Let's say they get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. They start taking their medication and they're starting to feel better. Um, And it might take some time, but they're starting to feel better. And then they feel like, well, I'm doing better. I I don't Mm -hmm. need my medication anymore. So I'm just going to stop taking it. That's when problems really start because uh, this is a lifelong I'm not going to say lifelong, it's a long-term treatment. It's something that you really do, um, you know, if you do need medication, that's just part of your new routine. And so if Mm -hmm. you just kind of start doing better and then you get off the medication, likely the symptoms are just going to come back maybe not immediately, but when you're under stress, stress can really trigger symptoms. So, yeah. um, you know, remembering that although you're making progress, that medication is likely really helping you. So really trying to, to continue even when you're past that point when your symptoms are much better.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you see that happening a lot, people stopping their medication?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, there is a real um, – the adjustment to taking medications can be really tough. There are different mm-hmm. side effects. There can be weight gain. There's there's different stuff that come along with the medication. But um, when you look at the big picture, taking medication is really key to living a more fulfilling life on so many other aspects that you really do need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I've seen people who who feel like they're doing better, and then they stop, and then the symptoms do come back eventually um, yeah. or and and again, symptoms come back even when you're on medication, but maybe not as severe so mm-hmm. so I think it it is really helpful when you're you're just consistent and and talking to your doctor, your psychiatrist about any of your any of the side effects that are troublesome or or just having that dialogue open because you know, the most important thing is that you're being honest about what the experience is for you and you're the expert on your condition and how it's affecting your body. And so that's very important that your doctor wouldn't know that unless you share that. And maybe something does need to be adjusted.
0: Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's, you touched on a really key point that, you know, it is your body and you have to communicate with your doctor. Um, and, like, I wouldn't be where I am today without medication. I just wouldn't. It has given me a life. It's given me my life back. Um, you know, I didn't just take medication though. It took a well-rounded approach, but medication allowed me to, to be clear for my mind to work like it needs to work so that I can be, um, so that I could get better. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think that I was really open with my doctor about it. And he, like, he was very honest. He's like, I, you know, he's like, I know these medications and I know bipolar disorder, but I'm not an expert. And so I don't know everything. Um, and there was a couple of times where I had to tell him, you know, this is about this medication or whatever. And he was just so open about it and willing to work with me on it. And, um, you know, he was the one that really, cause I didn't, so he, gave me the medication when I went to go see him. He had diagnosed with bipolar disorder and said, here's your meds, take these. And um, I just never wanted to take medication. And it kind of scared me, to be honest. And so when I went back the week later, I was still sick and worse than I was the week before. And he said, did you take your meds? And I said, no. And he said, don't come back here unless you want to take those because it's the only way you're going to get better right now. And uh, I was like, whoa, Okay. This guy's serious. <laughs> right. So yeah. yeah. And I've never had a doctor say that to me. Um, but I, you know, I really appreciated that he did. Um, and I could tell how much he cared that I got better. And so I took them and I've never stopped. But I have heard of people um who are bipolar that feel good and stop taking them. And to be honest, I've had that feeling once or twice. I've said, you know, I'm good now. Do I need to take the medication? But at this point in my life, I feel like I'm not ready to stop it. So I think it's important to to, to know your body and listen to it. And, and I think that there are some people that can probably deal with their illness without medication, but I think there's a lot of us that can't. Um, and I'm not ready to get off at any time soon be, because of the life that it's given me. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that's very important.
0: Yeah, so I think it's just important that people, you know, make that decision with their doctor. <clears throat> and I know like my psychologist didn't prescribe anything either, um because it's the same here in Canada, they can't prescribe medication, but she was an advocate with my doctor in terms of telling him, "Yes, this is a good medication or maybe we should try this one or whatever." She would send him letters that um would second the opinion or give advice to my doctor, which was really awesome. Um, so that's another point, you know, getting all of your doctors to kind of work together to help you on that.
1: Yeah, to have a team. And I think, you know, medication, like I said, is a, is a part of the treatment, but really uh, adjusting your lifestyle to make it the healthiest for you with your mm-hmm. sleep, with your eating, with your supports. It's all really, it, it's all important.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, that's the, our next question is about sleep. Um, I call like sleep is my secret weapon. <laughs> I don't think I've never slept well my entire life. Um, and I had a lot of insomnia, a lot of oversleeping when I was depressed, and um, I can sleep now because of my medication. Um, and it's like I don't knock on wood. I don't get sick. I mean I get mentally unwell but I don't get physically sick anymore and I think that's because I get a full night's sleep every every night. Um so as as a doctor what is your opinion on sleep and bipolar disorder?
1: Well I think that you just said that um I think that's a perfect example of just how much how important sleep is and it plays a role in how you feel during the day and your mm. overall health and especially with bipolar disorder because uh, lack of sleep can trigger mania or hypomania. And it can also, um, you know, it's one of those things, once you regulate your sleep, it can help to overall um, improve your chances of of limiting those episodes. Uh, you know, the more you can get on a routine and, and get enough sleep each night, and whether that's making it so that you... Um, making sure you get out of bed at a certain time and that you're in bed at a certain time each day. Mm. It's important to have that routine so that, um, you know, it's all connected to your mood and, and, um, and also seasons, you know, people with bipolar disorder are more, um, sensitive to the amount of light that they see. And again, I'm not, um, I'm not an expert in this specifically, but, um, just that idea that it's it's important not to exercise too much at night, you know, not to kind of activate yourself, kind of getting into a normal routine of, of winding down before bedtime. And, and that helps with the mood.
0: Yeah, that that's a really good point. Um, what do you think about, like, I've heard other, I know they said you're not an expert on this, but I've heard other people uh, talk about not watching TV or or having something like that before bed, do you think that helps? Yeah. So I think in general that
1: helps a lot with sleep and and just like putting your phone down, not even the light on your phone, I'm sure is activating or stimulating the mind in some way. Mm -hmm. So when you go to bed, really being free of those kind of technology and just trying to create some kind of ritual that's more calming, that helps your mind quiet down rather than um, stimulating it. So I think that whether it's TV or your phone, just kind of putting that away at a certain time, maybe a half hour before you go to sleep or more just so that your mind has a break. Yeah. That's good
0: advice. It's hard to do, but <laughs> yes, it is hard.
1: It's definitely hard to do.
0: Yeah. I think that we are just so attached to our phones and everything, right? Like I do it. I look up on my phone before I go to bed or something like that, but <laughs> I, because of my medication, it makes me so drowsy that I don't have a choice but to fall asleep. But I know when I wasn't on meds, things like that did help. Um, just having complete darkness and and not watching TV because I have a horrible habit of falling asleep to the TV. Because for years I couldn't do it without it. Because okay. I've always been like scared to fall asleep. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. um, and I never wanted to sleep. Like a lot of the times, I don't want to go to sleep. I just want it to be the morning. And so I had to listen to music or watch TV or I wouldn't fall asleep. So, you know, I really depended on that for a long time. Sure. And you
1: know what? The other thing is there's a lot of really
0: great new apps, you know,
1: meditation apps or things on YouTube, like calming things that you could listen to before bed. So, you know, using your phone in in whatever way that's going to be some type of somehow relaxing to you before you go to sleep so that, you know, sleep is meant to restore your mind and body. And so mm-hmm. you really want that time to be restorative and whatever your last think, your last looking at is, is in some way influencing that sleep period for you.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very important point. And I think that sleep, like, I just, I cannot say how good sleep is. <laughs> like- everybody needs to sleep. Okay. Um, I do like, have you heard anything about people with bipolar having nightmares? Well, I think, um, you know,
1: many people have nightmares and even sometimes some medications can, can trigger, you know, some disrupted sleep or some more nightmares once you're on certain medications. So I don't know if it's specific to bipolar disorder, but, um, was that something that you had heard?
0: Well, I've – well, I just – I've had horrible nightmares, mostly um, when I was into my teens and early 20s, and um, I noticed that the more stressed I got, the more um, nightmares I would have, but I think it's also from – because I have a lot of paranoia. It's Mm -hmm. a huge symptom of of my illness, so I think that's where a lot of it came from because when I started taking the meds, I – didn't have these nightmares anymore. I have them once in a while when I do get stressed, but not every night, like I was having them. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's really great that the medication did help quiet that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was another benefit because it's really stressful to go to sleep and have these horrible nightmares and wake up feeling awful. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the medication really helped with, with that, um, getting that, full nights of sleep without being stressed in your sleep because nobody wants that. <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And like add some, I actually have a whole um, chapter in my book about dreams because of all the messed up dreams that I have. Like my mom laughs all the time because I tell her these crazy things and she's like, I have no idea how your imagination comes up with these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um Okay. So what do you suggest for strategies to help with mood regulation and managing stress?
1: Well, I think, um, I think we've talked about a bunch, but just to, to recap some of them, you know, having healthy habits and that's just what you're in, what you're in control of during the day, like what you eat and your sleeping routine. And, um, exercise. All of those are really important to help managing mood and help managing stress and, and giving you more more energy during the day. Um, the other piece that's really important is having that support system. And, you know, maybe you look around and you realize that your friends aren't so supportive, or maybe the people you've been hanging out with haven't been really um you know, positive for you. So really evaluating who you're spending time with and because that energy kind of can rub off on you and surrounding yourself with people who really want your best interest and who are encouraging and supportive. And part of it also is you kind of being vulnerable to share if you need to, that you do have this diagnosis. And I'm not speaking to you, Leanna, specifically, yeah. but, but out there to people listening that sometimes it does take opening up and letting people know what your vulnerability is so that they can really support you in the best way and if they notice that your moods are are kind of off balance or they notice kind of some of those warning warning signs that they can they can step in or or help support you in a way that would help um mm-hmm. so it, it it there's a real combination of things that could be helpful.
0: Yeah, you're right. And again, as you know, as we said, it is different for every person. Um, and you know, my strategy may not necessarily work for somebody else, but it's, it can be hard. It can be complicated. (laughs) So there's a lot of,
1: I think a a really important thing that you could do is to be as self-aware and as educated Mm -hmm. as possible about your symptoms and about bipolar disorder in general, so that you kind of, you're aware and you're you know what to look out for. And, you know, there's a saying that knowledge equals power or self-awareness equals real power, because mm-hmm. the more, you know, the more you're able to act and and take care of yourself in a better
0: way. Exactly. Yeah. that That's a really good point. I always tell people to get educated, um, you know, on their illness because you, it just changes everything when you know, what's going on. And again, that goes, goes back to being diagnosed is, is you can learn, you can research you there's, we have all the information at our fingertips to know what is going on with us. And it really helped me, um, with in terms of coming up with a strategy in order to help myself. And when I would speak to the doctors, I knew what, um, was going on and how to, uh, work with them on in a collaborative way to help myself. So, I think those are all awesome points. Um, I'm glad that we put that out out there for people to hear. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. thank you so much. Uh, Really really appreciate that. Um, We're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to come back for one more segment with a few more questions. We're going to talk about the difference between borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder. I get asked that question all of the time, so I'm excited to hear your perspective. And then we have a few other questions. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. hey julie how's it going hey good thanks welcome back (laughs) all right so this is our last segment we have a few more questions to go through um and one of the questions is something that i get asked all the time so I'm excited to hear your perspective on that. Um, so something that we've we've talked about uh, quite a few times throughout the podcast, but maybe we can just um, summarize and get a couple important points out there. Uh, but what do you think are common barriers to getting the right help for people with bipolar disorder and other mental health disorders?
1: A main uh, barrier, a main obstacle for people is that number one, uh, the stigma, unfortunately, of Admitting that there's something that you you need help for or just nervousness about someone to get some help. I think um, you know, just by us talking about this today, I think it might help people to feel a little bit um, more safe to, to mm-hmm. go and, and talk to someone about some of the problems that they're experiencing. Um, but I, I just do want to totally normalize that this is something many people um, worry about is going to, to talk about whatever it is that they want to talk about with a therapist or their doctor. Uh, but it is actually so helpful once you're able to do that. Um, the other thing is just, we talked about before is the, you know, finding the right fit and it might not be the first person you meet with, and it might not be Mm -hmm. the second person. It, It might take a bit to find the right person for you. And that's the personality needs to be a good fit. And You know, it all comes down to the most helpful person for you is someone who you feel really comfortable talking to. Mm -hmm. And training is important and them asking the right questions, all that's important. But you'll know if someone is, you know, if you're able to really be yourself and share that information, that's a really good thing. So that's very important. Um, Also, um, the barriers having to do with, your financial situation and, and it is real that there are some psychologists and psychiatrists who don't accept insurance and so it may be more important for you to go through your insurance and mm-hmm. and do the research to find out who offers the services that you're able to afford and there are therapists who offer a sliding scale so um all of that is really probably going to be factored factored into your decision who you're going to go to for
0: help. Yeah, definitely. I think those are all important barriers. And I think, you know, the stigma is, is definitely one and just trying to be courageous or brave enough to even tell your story, even in a room just with you and a doctor. And, you know, that's still hard for people. And I think conversations like this, you know, can help people. But I think, you know, huge barrier for me was the, the financial side of it. Um, and at the time I was in school, so I was studying in university, um, but it was summertime and I, um, unfortunately had to quit my job due to my illness. And so, you know, it's not easy to find the right Person, when you're on a budget or when you're having to use the government-funded programs, because like psychologists here, pretty much, I've never met one that doesn't take any insurance. But insurance doesn't cover somebody that's not a doctor, so they don't cover therapists. Or sometimes they cover social workers, but a lot of the the insurance packages and the health benefits don't cover people. Um, unless they're doctors. So that can be a struggle too, because maybe you want to go see a therapist that's not a doctor, but it's not covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that, so
1: that's how it is in Canada. Although I mm-hmm. think that social workers can have the same coverage as a psychologist, possibly I mean, not the same coverage. It might be diff- slightly different, but mm-hmm. it's very important that you check with your insurance and see what they, what they cover if that is an issue and just to make sure you have all the information before, before you go in to see someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if that is a limitation and, and you open up and, you know, it's important for you to know that before you start treatment.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Fortunately, I, uh, my partner at the time I was on um, their benefits, but um, it only covered, I think six sessions and I needed way more than that. So um, what my psychologist did was give me three sessions pro bono and the rest I paid for. So, you know, it was a chunk out of my pocket, but I got the right help and and really good help. But it's, it is a huge barrier for people because a lot of times we don't have jobs when we are sick or we are unable to work or we just don't have those health benefits. So I think that, and it's unfortunate that the government funded one's, Um, you know, aren't offering better service anyway, in Saskatchewan anyways. Um, But I think that it is important to do some kind of research and to get, you know, you may have to pay for it. And that may be a thing, but somehow get the money um, to do it, because it's just so, so important. You can't really, you know, get healthy without that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think...
1: It is an investment I think just the way you said that it it really is an investment in your mm-hmm. in your well-being and I mean and just your ability to function and and finding the right person although there are many people out there who can help um what I what I said before was just finding the right person who you feel the most comfortable with I think that really will speed up your ability to to share and to make progress
0: yeah definitely I think it's a mixture of things but um, I hope everybody out there is able to find the care that they need. Um, Okay, so what is the, this is the question that I get all the time. And I know when I went to go see my psychologist, she was screening for this as well, because um, from what I know, there are similarities. But when you get under the surface, there, there's also some very uh, presenting big differences p- between the two. Um, so, what do you think is the biggest difference, or are the biggest differences between borderline personality disorder and bipolar bipolar disorder?
1: Okay, so you know, while bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder, they might have similar symptoms, such as um, extreme mood swings or some of the impulsivity and the relationship some of the relationship instability um, Mm -hmm. they are very different and they have unique treatments. So um, borderline personality disorder is mainly stemming from early trauma and triggers related to relationships and an underlying fear of abandonment and Mm -hmm. um, DBT dialectical behavior therapy is a main mode of treatment. That's very effective. Um, Okay. And so with borderline personality disorder, it's the symptoms are very consistent. It's kind of like there aren't any like periods of time where just the symptoms aren't present. It's just kind of a constant presentation where you're seeing the same symptoms that are pretty, you know, that mood instability or the problems in relationships or the um, impulsivity, it's pretty consistent. But then when we talk about bipolar disorder, it's more of an episodic cyclical um, condition where you're having periods of depression and periods of mania or hypomania. And there are breaks in the presentation where you're maybe absent of those symptoms or you're kind of more at a baseline that's different than when you're depressed and when you're um, in an elevated mood. So um, the treatment for bipolar disorder is different than the treatment for borderline personality disorder, and it is can it can be hard to tease out because there are there is that overlap at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do
0: you think um,
1: gets overlapped? So, um, like we mentioned, that the mood symptoms, and then you know at times there is this um, the suicidal thoughts can. Can pop up that happen mm-hmm. when you're, you know, um, in a real depressive state, or the um, impulsivity with, in terms of relationships, or difficulties with maintaining work, or you know, um, engaging in behaviors that might be harming to yourself. So those can happen in different periods you know, when someone has bipolar disorder, but it's, it's more of a consistent theme when you have borderline personality disorder. Those, um, if if that makes sense, it's more consistent and it doesn't kind of come and go. It's just kind of, that's the presentation. Um, Whereas there are breaks in those extreme moods and they, you might be more at a a more balanced
0: mood when you're not in one of the episodes when you have bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. Yeah no, that makes complete sense. That's, that's a really good way that you put it. Um, I think that there is a difference when, when you put it that way. Um, and I, from what I know, um, with, with borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder is that the mood uh, fluctuations look different. Um, bipolar disorder is they're a little bit longer and, um, they don't happen all the time. Whereas with borderline personality disorder, somebody could go up, in mood fluctuation within like a couple minutes. Is that true? I
1: think it depends. It depends on again with bipolar disorder, every it can look different in different people. So it really does depend, but they respond to different types of treatment also. Okay. Um, yeah. So if that makes sense. There is definitely a there is an overlap and so it can be hard. Um, for a doctor or the person diagnosing to tease that apart. So it's very important to be able to gather a really great history and get all the details
0: so that there isn't that confusion. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's great. That's really good insight. Thank you for that. Sure. Okay. So my last question, I guess, after all of this and everything that we've talked about today, what is your advice to others out there who are struggling with bipolar disorder and other mental health disorders?
1: So I think that, you know, part of why I wanted to, to be a guest or why I was open to being a guest today on your podcast is just to really normalize that, you know, having a mental health concern is nothing to be ashamed of, that mm-hmm. needing help, there's nothing to be ashamed of with needing help. And, and it is a sign of strength to be able to know when it's time for you to, to seek help. Um, a lot of times people think that they need to be strong enough to figure things out for themselves and maybe they're used to dealing with things on their own and, and, you know, in their family, maybe they thought that was a sign of real independence. And at some point when you realize you can't, and you, you you know, you actually really do need a professional to help you, um, Mm -hmm. it can feel like that's a weakness. And I really want to um, emphasize that there's nothing weak about needing to go talk to someone to get help and to have a sounding board where you feel safe to talk about some of these thoughts that can feel really scary. When you, when you keep anything to yourself and you kind of replay it in your mind, it can become really overwhelming and can feel really scary. And so the more you um, you know, so many people go to therapy, so many people benefit from this. And I think the more we can normalize that, um, it's actually very common to have, to have a mental health concern. It's like super common, but people don't feel comfortable talking about it. Even though I think it's hap- it, people are getting more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want people to feel like, you know, it doesn't mean anything about you as a person, um, or about your abilities or your, uh, intelligence or, you know, um, it's just something that, that you need to get help for. And, and, um, and once you do it'll really open up your life in a way where you're able to live more um, independently and you'll have a more fulfilling life once you get the help that you need
0: yeah totally um that's that's a really good point i think that once you take that step it's a, it gets a lot easier like at first you know it's it's never easy you know i remember the first time i stepped into a psychiatrist's office i was a, a mess Um, and, and that was partly because I was struggling so much, but also because I was scared. Um, you know, I had, I actually went with a friend, um, we made the appointment together because I was like, I can't do this without you. And, um, she went and saw the same psychiatrist for different reasons. But once you go a few times, it gets easier. And then, you know, you start to, to look forward to it because you know that it's going to help you. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, you're exactly right. Trying to normalize this process and know that it's okay to ask for help. It's always okay to ask for help. Um, you know, it's a huge part of this podcast and, and why I'm putting this out there is that people need to know that, that it, it, we need to start reaching out to each other and and getting help because it, it's not fair to um, struggle silently. I did that yeah. for years and it didn't, you know, get me anywhere. So so yeah, I'm really... And the and the one one
1: more thing I think you just mm-hmm. you just brought up a really important point that it's not like you just go in and talk to someone and and you feel better. It's not that it it may take real time of sifting through really difficult things and Mm -hmm. you might actually feel worse at first because you're kind of talking about things that are really hard to talk about and anytime we start to really admit what's going on it can actually feel really kind of scary and there are some people that find relief in a label like bipolar disorder um or anxiety disorder or depression because they're like, wow, yeah, that's why I've been feeling like this. And now I can mm-hmm. I get treatment. But there are other people who feel like, you know, now that they know that that's what's going on, it can feel really hard to accept. And it, it might take a lot of some time to really accept that that's what you're experiencing. So yeah. I think- being patient with yourself and being compassionate and trying to just treat yourself as you would a friend who is going through something like this and just knowing it's going to take time to get back to your usual self. um, Just like any kind of medical treatment, it's going to take some time.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think that you, it can be very uncomfortable, but eventually, you know, when you, you find that spot where you're like, okay, this is good now and, now you can, you can start working on yourself. And I really, again, the diagnosis just makes the world of a difference, I think. Um, or at least having, you know, a better idea of, of things that you can work on. Um, so any last words before we end this today?
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, I think this was a great
0: opportunity for me. And it
1: it gave me a chance to talk about a lot of things that, you know, I think, um, you know, people really do need to hear who are struggling. And I think it will probably shed some light on,
0: on some questions. So I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me today and to be on my podcast. Cause I think a lot of people will really enjoy this and get a lot out of it. Um, it's so nice to hear from a psychologist and someone that, you know, is so open to, to ending the stigma and to helping people and to really, you know, the, when we first started talking, um, on Instagram and you told me that, uh, it's, you know, the person's journey and that they're in charge and that, um, that really, uh, resonated with me because that's my whole, you know, philosophy to, to getting better. And I think that we as clients, um, and as psychologists just need to listen to each other and, um, and be open and honest and willing to share because that's when you really get those breakthrough moments, whatever they may be.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you, uh, sharing your opinions with us today and, um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
1: So one thing I would just want to add, if anyone listening, the one thing I can offer you, if you visit my website, which, um, is www.drjuliezelig.com. Uh, if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a free self-esteem guide. And that's just, um, a run through of of steps that can help to raise your self-esteem and build inner strength. So, um, you could visit my Instagram at dr julie Zelig, and sign up for my uh, free self-esteem guide
0: that's awesome i'm gonna um i will also share that on my page um, on instagram as well and i will uh talk about that in my when i say goodbye to everyone in my final segment i'll mention it again so that's Great. really cool so it's a free self-esteem guide that's what you put together yeah. Yeah. Well, I would lead self-esteem
1: groups for women in Sarasota, Florida, but it's something I just wanted to be able to reach more people. So this is just kind of a, a brief little book that, that helps to build inner strength. And, and I also have a newsletter. So if you sign up on my website, it will um, you'll get linked up with my newsletter and I send out letters every once in a while and just different thoughts
0: and things to think about that help to build inner strength. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'm on your website right now. It's really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sign up for your newsletter too. So um, everyone go to com, And I will share that um, in, in the podcast description and also on my Instagram page. Um, and what's your Instagram handle? Is at Zelig. So it's Zelig. Awesome. Yep. That's great. Everybody go follow her as well. <laughs> Thank okay, you. so yeah, again, thank you so much um and keep doing all the great work that you are doing. You too. It was my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. You
1: too. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you all for listening today and your continued support with everything that I do. It was so wonderful to have a psychologist on here today to give us um her perspective and to see, you know, what it's like um on the psychologist side of it because I talk a lot about our side and the client side and the and the person with mental health disorder but you know it's it's really different to be on the other side of things and and their work is hard and they do a lot for us um and it's really great you know Julie kind of restored my faith in into that industry and into the psychologist because I did have a lot of bad luck unfortunately um not only with psychologists but with doctors in general which you you all know because I've talked about quite a bit um I did eventually, you know, find that psychologist that worked for me. So they are out there, um, you know, as Dr. Dooley-Zellig said, and as I've experienced, and you really do just have to find the right one for you. Um, It's like a matchmaking game almost, you know. I've seen several different ones and ones that are, are, uh, you know, suggesting I do things that really just don't uh, match with me in the way that I want to heal so you know Dr. Julie Zellig did say a lot about that and and she's totally right Um, and so to everyone out there today I, I want you to right now if you're struggling and you need help I want you to reach out and find a psychologist a therapist a psychiatrist and and somebody that's that you truly feel is going to help you and be as honest and as vulnerable as you can the more open you are the better your healing process will be even if it's with a GP you know to be honest I got the most help from my doctor from my family doctor he was the one that diagnosed me and put me on the meds and and saved my life really so you just have to find that one person who is willing to to go the extra mile for you um and is willing to listen to you and to work with you and at the same time you have to be ready as well it is a collaborative process and you have to be open um into to to hearing new things uh when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder I was shocked I, I had no idea really or sorry when the first psychologist brought it up I really had no idea that that is what I had um it took me six months to to even let that sink in but I did let it sink in and I was open I was so open to hearing why I had it and and if this was my illness and and it was. After I got the diagnosis, I was like a rocket ship just got healthy. So, you know, check out um Dr. Julie Zelig's Instagram. I did uh put a post on my story today about um our podcast and you will be able to see her her um her handle there and you can just click on it it'll link to it also check out her website www.drjuliezelig.com you can get a free self-esteem guide and sign up for her newsletter once again, thank you all. Check out my Instagram, Bliss 199 I tell everything about my life in terms of mental health and how to get better, um, all the th- struggles and things that I went through. I'm turning that all into a package. Um, and by this Friday, I'm looking for three people to talk to. So please message me on Instagram if you're interested and stay tuned for more information about my course. Thank you all for your continued support. I really appreciate it and stay healthy. Bye-bye. Yeah. Remember, give in, get better, and never give up.